a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 92 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.StarWarsReport.com. They can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like an imperial knight with a hunch, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hello, all. Glad to be back looking at uh, a new piece of... What should we call it now? The old continuity? We're... We're recording this on the same day that we've seen the posting of an interview with Shelley Shapiro, who refers to, uh, what does she say? I anticipate that we'll be brimming over with ideas for new fiction tying into the new continuity, both of episodes 7, 8, and 9, and of the standalone movies that have been announced, not to mention the upcoming, or excuse me, not to mention the new upcoming Rebels animated series. Um, I'm hoping that is just us, uh, using the term continuity differently than she does, her meaning more just the new stuff being introduced with those films. But uh, certainly seems like the post-Return of the Jedi EU is the stuff that's going to take the biggest hit, uh, if any of it survives with the new films and everything, if they're not just going to pull it and make it a separate continuity. So here we are, the furthest out we ever get so far in this old continuity or whatever we should be calling it. Well, and keep in mind that they said one of those standalones setting in between the sequel trilogy is going to be an origin story. So if it, too, has a new continuity, I mean... Oh, no, 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 no. They didn't say that one of them would be origin stories. They said that all of these standalones are origin stories. That's the most recent thing Disney said. Oh, see, that I was wondering. A lot of people were saying that, and the one that I read just said that at least one of them was. And then everybody was like, all of them are going to be. I'm like, wait, what? I didn't read all of them. I must have read a different article then. And that's the thing. I mean, you know, when all this is coming out, it's like if you're not going straight to the source, you're not going to Lucasfilm, Delray, or Disney and getting it from them, you don't exactly know if you're getting an interpretation or just a a different use of words and grammar. I mean, I mean, like, with Shelley using new continuity. I mean, definitely I could see it being the aspect of the new story is how she means it. But for us, it's kind of like, well, is it going to tie in to the new and the old? And like, how is that going to work? Because there's different ways of looking at the word. Exactly. So we left off uh, mid discussion last week, having spent quite a lot of time talking about uh, overall impressions, non-spoiler impressions and impressions of the artwork in the topic we're covering this time around. So we are actually at the point now to look at the last three issues of the first five-issue arc of... Well, what are we talking about, Mark? Well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or the simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we continue looking at Star Wars Legacy Volume 2 by Dark Horse Comics. Now consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience, because if you want our spoiler-free review, go back to episode 91, because here we go. That's right. We left off uh, after issue two, 
with Darth Rid, the as yet unnamed Sith Lord, having taken the place of Imperial Knight Master Yalta Val, who was being held as a prisoner on the planet Mala, the uh, floating world, so to speak, inside the Surd Nebula. We have no idea yet what his plans are, but he has taken Val's place in dealing with both the Carreras system and its governor, Biala, and the communications array being built there. Uh, Anya Solo has encountered this man as she has gotten a hold of Yalta Val's lightsaber and he wants it back as a, presumably part of the disguise that he has going on there, part of his ruse. And we have met uh, Anya's companions, Salk the Mon Calamari, and AG-37, the IG series assassin droid. We've also briefly met another Imperial Knight, Jao Assam, Joe Awesome, um, who is uh, disobeying orders in order to check and see what is going on with Yalta Val. Uh, with a new blockade in place over, or a new uh, fleet in place over Carreras, we left off with issue two as our heroes were careening towards that. We pick up then with issue number three, uh, Prisoner of the Floating World Part 3, though you won't find that anywhere within the interior information uh, as you open these up. Only the first issue actually had the name of the story arc in it. Uh, we pick up with Jao taking a starfighter to try to figure out what the heck is going on and where it is that uh, Yalta Val has disappeared to. His search continues as AG-37 ship bearing AG-37, Anya, and Salk have to dodge blasts from ships from that blockade. They wind up entering into, and it looks a little weird, they enter the rings of this planet, of Carreras, and it's like as they fly into the rings, it's like it creates like a wormhole-looking thing. Like they can travel through the rings, and instead of it all just being the same color as the rings themselves, it goes from orange to blue, and it's mm -hmm. like they're flying through a tunnel or See, I something. It was some an kind of asteroid. Well, no, because that was the impression I got was like that it was ice because he because he's a Salk's an ice miner. That that's the only thing we've got to go on here. Right. But you're right in the aspect of the color change throws you off because like I'm assuming that ring is supposed to be a bunch of floating asteroids and ice crystals. But yeah, the color change was like, wait, where are they at? Like, did they just go into the planet? <laughs> it must be because they fly into it. And they're being chased by these starfighters, and uh, Anya's solution is essentially to open up the cargo hold and let the smaller ship inside go flying out and smash into the pursuing starship. And then we see them come blasting back out of the ring around the planet. So it must all be within the rings, and it must be just that it's it's like ice with some icy corridors. We never really get an explanation as to where they're going. Um, only the yeah. fact that they went into the rings and pop back out the other side. You know, and, th and that could be, like, could it the rings themselves be multiple asteroids? And I'm actually kind of thinking less that that's the case. Like, maybe that the whole thing itself is just one giant collection that is solidified. I mean, I think about caving. You know, when you go into some of the ice caves, they start out like rock like everything else. But once you get past a certain point, it gets very cold. And then all of a sudden there's ice. And, you know, you go back to these same caves in the wintertime and spots that you could walk in the summertime are completely encased in snow and ice. Um, so I could see that aspect, like once you get inside the, the tunnel or inside the ring or inside the asteroid or whatever it is exactly they flew into. I mean, it does look like it's just the, the ring itself is one giant asteroid, which is weird, but 
okay, I'll get behind that. And maybe the blue is just once they got down past the first five feet or 50 meters or so, then it became ice and then they're inside the ice that, that they've been mining. But that gets back to this isn't that same planet that Sock was mining, though. So, I mean, a lot is left for me to draw on here. And I, I mean, sometimes I think that there should be some, a little bit of narration like the old Peter Parker days, you know, like and then Peter saw this. Or even something where, you know, you got a little bit more dialogue to explain exactly where it is that they're heading or maybe seeing something on the screen uh, uh, as yeah. they're piloting or something. Dive into that asteroid right there in the rings. Problem something. Solved. I mean, take a cue from the audio dramas. If your art isn't going to be clear, then do a little bit more with the narration. But then again, how could... You know what? I take it back. I was going to say, how could the writer know how unclear the art was going to be? But this is a husband and wife team. There should have been much more collaboration on the storytelling between the art and the writing on this than there is on just about any other Star Wars project, unless you've got a situation where you've got someone doing the art and the writing themselves. It's the closest collaboration we should have ever seen. Um, in any event, Zhao winds up being stopped by the blockade right outside the Surd Nebula briefly. Um, he escapes from it before he can be taken into custody on orders from the false Yaltaval, who he still hasn't seen yet to realize that someone's taken Yaltaval's place. Uh, meanwhile, AG-37's ship has had to land on the surface of Carreras Minor. They are, their ship, that is, comes under attack by a huge tentacled creature. And we get the scene that gives us the interesting cover of the, uh, again, and I, I, I say this to their credit, the black Imperial Knight fighting against the tentacles here. We have a black character, what appears to be a... Uh, uh, we talked about last time, maybe an, an Arab uh, skin tone or a Latino skin tone um, Imperial Knight character. Plus, we have a woman here. We don't really have any major characters who are Caucasian males other than the bad guy. Um, but here we have uh, Zhao jumps in, saves the day, and it seems like this is what the entire issue was based around. To finally bring Zhao, who is going to be one of our major characters, it seems like, in the series, into contact with Anya, Salk, and AG-37. Because the last confrontation that Anya had with an Imperial Knight was with the fake Yaltaval, Darth Red, and he tried to kill her in order to get that lightsaber, or at least he ordered his minions to kill her as he twirled his mustache that doesn't exist, uh, and made his way out of there. And she pulls her blaster on him, and it basically... It makes for an interesting confrontation because they're both coming from this with completely different understandings of what's going on in the situation. It takes AG-37 to sort of speak the the, the reason into the situation, and Salk himself even manages to pull a blaster on the group. Though he gets one of the funnier moments of this entire arc, uh, where he pulls a, a big big old blaster rifle at Zhao and says, Step away from them, knight! To which AG-37 replies, Stand down, Salk, we're okay! Oh, good! I have no idea how to shoot this thing, which is I love that part. <laughs> like one of the few really, really good comedic moments in here. Um, but we do find, as they talk about what's going on, um, Salk says, you know, you really can't blame us. Your fellow knight is trying very hard to have us killed. Uh, Zhao thinks it's impossible because he has worked so much with Master Val, and he's a true knight of the Empire, he says, and points out that the droid that they've just fixed, that little uh, uh, message probe droid that winds up carrying Master Val's uh, lightsaber, that winds up getting into uh, uh, Anya's possession here, um, was putting out the beacon for what is supposed to be Val's ship. And they show the video. Salk is the one to realize, wait a second, let's show that video where we all just realized in the last issue that the two knights, the one on the video and the one that just accosted us, aren't the same guy. 
gee, maybe that'll clear things up. They play it, and sure enough, Zhao is able to confirm that that is not Master Val. Although I find it interesting that he says, you know, no, or the, the, the one you met wasn't Master Val. That's Master Val, he says, pointing to the man in the recording. To which Anya replies, it can't be. That's not the same knight who tried to kill us. Uh, then someone is impersonating Master Val, etc., etc., etc. Didn't they just figure that out in the last issue? Isn't that basically what Anya and Salk and AG37 figured out the first time they watched the recording? Why are they so shocked when Zhao is the one saying, yeah, somebody must be impersonating him? Um, well, I think that they thought that, that Val, the Sith Lord, was Val, and that they just didn't know who this other knight was. I don't think that they put together that he was being impersonated yet. They just knew something was off. But they knew that there were at least two different uh, yeah, Imperial Knights involved in It shouldn't have been so surprising to her. She shouldn't have been, like, jaw-hanging, slack-jawed there. Uh, really quick, I did want to point out, though, uh, I was wrong. They did go back to Sox Mining World. Um, it's all is within the same bit of the nebula, so I don't know why I, I thought for some reason it was outside the nebula and they had to go in, but apparently it was all inside the nebula the whole time. Ah. So, they now know that uh, something is not right, something is rotten in the system of Carreras, um, to paraphrase Hamlet, and the result is that they decide to work together to find and rescue, if he's still alive, the Rio Yaltabal and expose this imposter. And even as they are doing so, they're going to wind up flying uh, their way towards Carreras and get themselves uh, captured by a tractor beam at the end of the issue. As they're doing that... The fake Yaltabal, Darth Red, really isn't doing a good job of acting like an Imperial Knight. And that uh, when things aren't working exactly correctly on the communications array that he himself also wants to be operational, um, he winds up you know, lifting up one of the workers by his throat, uh, threatening him. It's, it's pretty obvious, the more that he does that this man is not a good-natured Imperial Knight. But I think that brings up an interesting question before we move towards issue number four. And that is, just what exactly should we expect from an Imperial Knight? We've got this sense in the original legacy that there are the Jedi who are, the, who are representing the light side. We have the Sith representing the dark side. And the Imperial Knights were sort of an unusual group in that they're not so, they're not so much light side or dark side as they are driven by duty to the Empire through its Emperor. And mm -hmm. they try to be honorable and do good things, which makes them lean closer to being Jedi. And you don't usually see them delve too far into the dark side, but I never got the sense that they were quite as dogmatic in the sense of light side, dark side, as, say, the Jedi and Sith were. So I'm wondering at this point, yes, he's being violent, but as part of why there's no issue being raised with it yet, that it's going to take a little bit more later in the story to finally get Governor Biala to finally turn on him and, and not agree to deal with what the imposter wants, is part of that perhaps the fact that there is no clear line of behavior that should be expected from an Imperial Knight, and therefore if he is going a little mm. overboard toward the dark side, that may not be normal, but it certainly isn't outside of the realm of possibility for an Imperial Knight, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, when, when I think of the Imperial Knights, I always saw them kind of like the Jedi, um, more kind of binded to the government, kind of. Kind of how the Jedi were during the New Jedi Order, where they were kind of being seen as, you know, the Alliance's Jedi, or the, uh, you know, the, well, it was New Republic at the beginning. So, yeah, it was the New Republic's Jedi. Kind of like how they were just treated as a branch of the government, kind of thing. This is how the Imperial Knights were. You know, they were actually, you know, part of the ranks. I, I kind of think more like... uh 
King Arthur and how his knights worked, like, you know, they were kind of part of that royalty in that regard, uh, gives me kind of like that old medieval feel, you know, because you got the emperor, you've got his knights, um, even the emperor was one at one point. Even, well, shoot, even the empress was was knighted at a point. Um, so for me, I mean, I never really thought about them really dwelling much in the dark. I always saw them also kind of trying to stay to the light like a Jedi. I mean, that's kind of where I was hoping that sort of the Jedi would show us the founding of the Imperial Knights. I've always been curious as to who was the founder there. Was it going to be, you know, her her child? Was it going to be her? At one point, I thought Tahiri was going to be it, you know, in uh, Legacy of the Force. They were kind of shaping it up, and then they made her an Imperial Hand for a short period of time. Uh, you know, I mean, so I, I'm curious to know more about him. But you're right. There, there isn't enough really there to say whether or not that what he's doing is a good or a bad thing or out of the norm for an Imperial Knight. Uh, you know, Balia, when she watches, you know, I guess at this point it's it's weird or Red Val, uh, when he lifts that guy up and he goes, I won't forget your failure and drops the guy down. The guy's clutching his throat. You could see that she's pretty upset by it. I mean, and then we later see that, you know, she manages to find some really cool information. But. Yeah, it's not enough to say one way or another if that's too outside the norm. I mean, for us, the readers, it screams Sith, but does the same thing ring for Bial or Biala or whatever the heck her name was? And that brings us into issue number four. Um, issue four is, is one that it, it advances the plot significantly. But at the same time, it had some head scratching moments for me. I think that's the way this whole series works for me. You know, overall... Decent storyline, but especially within the artwork, there's always that that head shaking going on for me. Um, we start with the array coming online with his directional thrusters at the orders of the fake Yaltaval, at the orders of Darth Red. And at this point, the governor uh, wants to still get the project done because it's earned the favor of the Galactic Triumvirate uh, government, but at the same time... Uh, knowing that, that uh, Yaltaval, or whoever this supposed Yaltaval is, has stepped over the line and, at this point, wants to simply lodge a formal complaint after everything is over with. Um, we pick up, then, with our heroes in AG-37 ship being drawn aboard a uh, one of the, the ships in that blockade, only to wind up being attacked by what appears to be micro-machines. Basically, uh... <laughs> That's funny, because I was thinking, uh, what was it, Star Trek... Uh... Oh man, I can't insurrection when the little little things were chasing them through the hills and tagging the people and they were being beamed off. That was what came to my mind. Teeny, teeny, tiny little ships. Um, like the 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 there's a burning of the wall, and when the wall opens up, instead of it being a bunch of people coming through the board since it's a smaller hole, it's all these little teeny tiny McDonald's toy type things that are coming to try to attack them. Like there's too many of them. Yeah, because there's a crap ton of them, and they're teeny tiny. They well, it's manage... like, what are they doing? I mean, they're not shooting. They're not stunning them. They're just flying all around them. I mean, what's the real threat here? <laughs> Do they have razors on them or something? Annoyance. They're going to use them to annoy them to death. Um, <laughs> until finally they manage to be driven back to where they are captured. And we get the next straw breaking the camel's back in that uh, they report this to... Darth Red slash Yaltaval, the fake Yaltaval, and he orders the Imperial Knight Jow to be brought to the array, but the others to be killed. And at this point, Governor Biala speaks up and says, no, we'll do no such thing. And I have to say, this has a few different things that, that, that grab me both in positive and negative ways. First off, the artist can't figure out 
what the fake Yaltabal slash Darth Red's face looks like in terms of injuries and such. In one panel, the third one on the page where they're, they're contacting the array, he's got some scuffs on his face, two of which look distinctly like X's, and one that looks like he's got like uh, the dark stuff going on his cheek that should be a little closer to his eye to play football or something. Only in the very next panel, that's a closer-up shot, all of those injuries are gone. So that only on the next page, he shows up again, and from a little bit further away, we see the smudge part beneath his eye, but don't see anything else. Again, it's like, basically, we want to make him look gruff and injured, so we're just going to put random marks on him to make it seem as though he's gruff and injured without having any continuity as to where those marks are, with the minor exception of the one smudge under his eye. It also shifts where the scene takes place. At first, I was thinking that uh, Biala is going off and talking to uh, Red here in front of the two people who are manning the comm station on the array. But apparently that's not the case because on the left-hand page, it's a blue-lit background. On the next page, there's no one else there with them, and it's a red background. Apparently it's, no, we will do no such thing. And then they go to carry on that conversation elsewhere. Granted, Come with I, me to the counselor's quarters. Pretty much. I like the way it plays out, though. Um, Biala says... Uh, you forget that my government is autonomous. You do not get to execute someone without a trial here. It would be much more expedient if you would just trust me, Madam Governor, which I think is perhaps our first indication that this governor is supposed to be a woman, because uh, certainly nothing in the way the character is drawn or the way the character, uh, uh, in terms of facial expressions or anything like that, has been designed before, perhaps because it's an alien species. Well, um, I think that could be because of the fact that we're used to seeing men wearing full-length robes and stuff like that. Because I did always think she was a girl. I mean, it, like, even in this image, it looks like she's wearing a dress and she's got, like, a kind of almost like a Muslim head wrap kind of thing going on. But because we're always seeing Jedis in full-length robes, it's not so uncommon to see men dressed like that in Star Wars. I don't know. I just didn't... Nothing screamed female to me at all for this character. Um... But the response is, uh, trust you, I've done nothing but trust you. You and this new triumvirate. So far it's created nothing but expense for my people. I'm the governor here, I was elected by the people. I'm taking back control of this project. You'll have to... <laughs> and then he starts choking her. I could snap your neck with a thought. No one would even know what happened to you. So you might want to keep your mouth shut. That's pretty much the final straw for Governor Biala. Um, and while Anya and Salk and AG-37, who now has a restraining bolt on him, aren't going to be able to free themselves, uh, Biala will be able to. Biala winds up listening in, uh, with, with suspicions raised, to a conversation between Darth Red slash Yaltaval and the captive Jao, who's being holed in sort of one of those... Uh, it kind of reminds me of the suspension form that's used for Obi-Wan in Attack mm -hmm. of the Clones, right? Mm -hmm. uh, with the whole traitor thing. And there's the, the explanation that, uh, at least the beginnings of the explanation, that basically what Red wants to do is essentially bring back the old version of the Sith. One master, one apprentice, not the one Sith concept that Darth Krayt had, and that uh, he's you know, sort of teaching lessons in that to Yaltaval, and maybe he won't be able to turn Val, but he's just sort of the, the first step in the process, and he's essentially offering or suggesting to Zhao the possibility that Zhao could wind up being his apprentice, right? What good is an Imperial Knight without an Empire, or with one for that matter? We bring peace to the galaxy. Really? Well, I suppose working on construction projects instead of hunting down Sith does make the galaxy more peaceful. 
or the Sith at least. But ask yourself, are you truly on the right side? Wouldn't you rather be hunting down the Sith? They're out there, you know, infiltrating out-of-the-way systems, consolidating power. What? But aren't you? Clever knight. But there should be two, a master and an apprentice. And mm -hmm. Biala seeing this is what convinces Biala to essentially uh, break Sauk and AG-37. Uh, or sorry, excuse me, doesn't break out uh, them first. Breaks out Zhao and tells Zhao, you know, uh, I'll release your friends, just get rid of him, get rid of the other. Then releases the other three, and together they make their way toward uh, the hangar bay area. I like the fact that our heroes are not ones that just magically have a way to get out of every situation. It's not making them into superheroes in a sense. It's mm -hmm. Red's own undoing the way he's been acting, and it causes Biala to essentially cross the line and allow our heroes to escape so that they can carry out the rest of the of the plot line here. It's very much... Um, I, mean, I mean, you see this in a lot of stories where, you know, it's the it's the betrayal of the ideals of the society by the villain that causes someone who had been an ally to the villain to turn around and help the heroes in undermining the villain, even if there is some level of cost to themselves. I, I like that angle used here. Yeah, I mean, th this was a fun one for me. I mean, I get most of my issues with this comes from art and that. I'm more detail driven when it comes to my stuff. And so the lack of details is causing me to get out of it. I mean, I get, you know, there's a lot of you beyonders out there. We're really enjoying this. This issue was a lot of fun for me. <clears throat> when we get to that point where uh, Darth Red's talking to Jow and he, he does all that stuff. I, I loved that scene. That was a great scene. But then we get a little, an interesting part uh, with the probe droid kind of comes up out of what looks to be a, a compartment inside the hangar inside AG's ship right by where Zhao's ship is parked. But like, if you didn't remember that AG told Zhao, park your ship in the hold, we're going to go look for the real Val, you'd think this was in the actual bigger ship. Because uh, it seems to be that even... I mean, because, okay, you got these two guards, they're standing outside AG's ship. And then you see the uh, W3 ship. I say W3 because that's the droid of Zhao's inside of it. But you have the impression that it's all in the same hangar, except for it's slightly darker. So it's a, a little nuance there. And then, of course, you see the creak, and the little thing comes up. But you see the guard still talking in that panel. It says, fine, I won't tell you the rest. So it kind of gives you the impression that they're inside the cargo bay, but they're not. They're outside the ship. And then you see him drop out, and you see them still talking. Uh, but it was interesting because you don't see anything that tells the droid to do this. You don't know if this was all planned. Like The droid's just acting out of its own... And there's really no reason for the droid to even be doing this, as far as I'm aware. It just does it. That's a one weird thing. But we go back uh, after Red has been talking to Jow, and we go to where Anya and Sokka are at with AG in the prison cells, and they're just sitting there, and all of a sudden, Sokka goes, it moved. What? The planet. It didn't disappear. It moved. All planets move. I mean, it's a planet that doesn't orbit a star. It just sort of wanders around. A rogue. That's why the calm droid's coordinates were wrong. So where'd it go? And, you know, I, I just love the fact that, you know, Sulk, is he just sits there and he just figures it out. I mean, you know, they could be just stuck doing nothing, but they give us a moment where not only is he just sitting there thinking he's doing the classic engineer thing, he's trying to figure out solutions to problems. And he figured out why, when they went to the coordinates, the planet wasn't there. Gives you kind of that feeling of, of uh, Zenoma Sakat in the New Jedi Order. Um, 
But the scene where Balia lets out Jao, that was a really cool scene for me. I really enjoyed it. You know, you see him hanging up, you see a figure there, and you see the, the field shut down, and he falls, he thuds to the ground, and all of a sudden, clack, 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 his lightsaber goes rolling in front of him, and you see, you know what to do. And he goes, you have to release my friends. Fine. Just get rid of him. And I love the fact that she's just like, that she knows what to do, and she knows that he's bad. And, and I just, I love how... The, she doesn't have to say much, but that scene for me, that spoke volumes. I loved it. And like how you said, how it all ties together. That was a really fun moment for me. And I, there are moments here coming up in this one and into the next one where I really started to get the feeling that Anya was Han Solo, you know, that Jao was kind of like the Luke Skywalker of the moment while he was doing, or, or even Val at some points, you know, while they're doing the Jedi thing, it frees her up to go do the things that Han always did in the big three novels. You know, Luke was always confronting the big issue. Leia was always confronting the political thing and Han was doing all the back scene stuff. And I love that, that you're seeing it start to form here. And of course we get our moment of Anya shoots first because as they are making their way to the hangar, the expectation is to get on a ship and use Salk's new understanding of what's going on with Mala to find Yalta Val, the real Yaltaval, and instead they get to the hangar as Red is getting ready to leave himself, and rather than waiting and sticking to the plan, Anya just charges forward with a, a blaster pistol and starts shooting at Red's starfighter, or Red's uh, escape ship, which, for its part, is a flimsy piece of crap, because it only <laughs> takes a couple of shots from the blaster pistol to cause the entire thing to come crashing down and freaking blow to bits. Now, um, in issue 91, I'd mentioned this scene, uh, talking about continuities that didn't quite line up. Now, when you see Darth Red walking across in the panel before it, a couple panels before it, pages before, you see the hangar, and you see like what looks like one of the ships he's about to climb into. You don't see any others. They kind of give you a feeling like there's a couple ships there, but very little. When he's flying out, you see no ships around him. She shoots, the ship blows up, and he magically just springs out of all the wreckage without being hurt. But then when he ends up getting down and after the fight, he turns and gets onto another ship that's there. It's like, where was that ship all of a sudden? Like, that that threw me off. Well, there's, and more, that... there's more ships in the hangar bay whenever we first see it, when they first come in. Yeah, where the, and the that's panel where he says just she has such a little detail. Yeah, that's the one. But there's such little detail there that it's hard to even, like, they don't even really look like the same shape. And that's the kind of details that when I'm looking at these kind of backgrounds and stuff, that's the kind of story that for me is missing. You know, I, I said in mm -hmm. issue 91, I'll grab a comic and I'll flip through it looking at the art because the art tells a story. This art does not tell a story. It sort of complements the story but not really telling anything of its own. Other comics that you'll grab and the details there and popping, you can see a lot of really cool nuances in the background. You can see little things going on in the background. You can maybe see even a character have a running gag and stuff like that. That's all missing here. Right. And, of course, as he jumps out, he grabs Anya, and in order to get uh, him to put her down, basically throw her, they charge him. And it's interesting because, again, the artwork doesn't serve the story here. You've got the blaster bolts coming up towards the chest of Red, and he blocks a few. And in the next shot, we see Salk firing, AG-37 firing, and in front of them, Jao running forward with his extremely long lightsaber. Extremely long relative to the others, except, I mean, we see the same thing going on with the extremely long saber for Red in the previous page. Um, but Salk and AG are firing from waist level or stomach level, and it looks like they're shooting at the ground as they're yeah. running forward. Salk, it, it makes sense because he earlier said he didn't know how to shoot it, but AG holding the gun in the same way, I mean, that, I mean, it works for Salk. 
But AJ's an assassin droid. Really? You're going to hold the gun like that right in the middle of your belly button? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Unless maybe he's plugged it in to give it extra charge or something into his standing. <laughs> oh, um, Iron Man, my, my power blast. <laughs> right. So uh, as they charge forward, apparently somewhat incompetently, uh, we see AG-37 get... It looks like he's getting force blasted back because it looks like everything else, including Anya, oh, no. are being thrown. He but instead forward. he's grabbing him forward yeah. into the blade and AG-37 essentially gets slashed in half. Although, again, if you look at the way he is slashed in half, he's being slashed apparently at the waist. And I believe later in in the next issue we see him split closely at the waist. But look at the way that shot is framed. He's slashed at the waist, and the top of his body looks like the slash is at the waist. The bottom of his body looks like the slash goes from basically his waist on one side up to his shoulder on the other side. The slash, the, if he's put back together the way that he is slashed apart here, if you just took those two halves and glued them together, it wouldn't make sense. His body would basically get to his waist, and then his entire torso would be crooked going off to the left diagonally, and he'd have one arm going off of the shoulder up there and one going off the other side. It, the pieces don't match. And this isn't even frame to frame stuff. This is one panel, and the art doesn't match itself. Yeah, that one does throw you off because it does look like he's going from shoulder down to hip in that scene. And then in the next one, you see both arms attached to the upper torso with sparks down by by the waist. Yeah, that one, that yeah. one doesn't line up. And, yeah, and unless this is General Grievous and he's got an extra set of <laughs> arms we haven't seen, this art makes no sense. So I, I was trying to think maybe that arm that we're seeing, maybe that was his hip and that's the leg, but that doesn't line up. And if it does, then they really messed up that leg, but... Yeah, it, 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 again, the, the, the way it's drawn doesn't make a lot of sense. We see Song get knocked out. We see Zhao uh, battling with uh, Red. And this is another point where, again, it's a cool sequence. I like this action sequence, especially mm -hmm. given the fact that a lot of it is impromptu on the hero's part because of Anya being rash. But we see then that as they're fighting, Zhao swings his lightsaber up in a two-handed grip and slashes across the right-hand side of Red's face, delivering a scar and an injury that is going to wind up causing him to have a new face mask in the next issue and in the next arc. But two things strike me with this. One, that when we see him immediately thereafter uh, grab or use the force to throw a couple of uh, pieces of wreckage to stab through uh, the lower torso of Zhao and cause him to thump down, he drops his lightsaber, uh, and then... Uh, as the ship takes off, as a uh, Red takes off in a small ship, uh, Zhao winds up being essentially pulled out with it and seems to be floating in space with those those spear-like pieces of debris stabbing through him. A mm -hmm. um, couple of things. One, why doesn't the lightsaber and Anya and everything else in the docking bay fly out? And yeah. if it's not a matter of simply he turns it off and flies out, if he's flying through a field... Uh, as we usually see in Star Wars, and that doesn't cause complete decompression, why is Jow flying out along with the ship? That makes no sense. Second, in the shot where he's throwing the, the pieces of debris through the lower stomach or whatever of Jow, we see the damage done to Red's face. And with this yeah. art style, how do you represent the slashing of one side of the character's face, simple. Draw his face and then scribble a lot in black over the part that's supposed to be injured. And third, 
Look at the shot in which he swings upward and slashes through through a, a Red's face. At the distance at which we are seeing this shot, the distance that they put these two characters together in the shot in which the injury actually occurs, that should have taken half of his head off. That was not the point of the lightsaber, especially given the insane length of the lightsabers as they're drawn in this issue. That should have taken his head off, or the characters should have been at least a couple more feet apart for just the tip to have caused an injury that Red could somehow have survived. Again, the well, art does not serve the story. That last one, okay, I, I'm going to take a stab at a possible reason here i'm gonna say that the armor (laughs) yeah the armor is the cordless ore and when he hit it it started to disintegrate the blade because there's all these little weird dots uh around the saber and falling away from the armor so maybe when he hit that it caused the blade to lose its integrity and the blade got shorter you know i would I would buy that, and I would buy that like with many times we see Cortosis, it actually shorts out the blade, especially given that in the next shot, or a couple shots later, uh, on the next page when we see him getting stabbed through, the lightsaber is off, and when it falls, it is off. But there is a panel in between those two in which he is holding up the lightsaber yeah. ready to stab him, and the lightsaber is fully ignited. So for Well, Cortosis, it still does have those the, white dots, not, but... Not but those white dots also are they're there all the time, so I guess that thought goes right out the window. He has one You're of those right. mystical uh, uh, special Imperial Knight baby powder lightsabers. Yeah, now when Jal goes floating out, if they would have took the cockpit of the ship that Red's in and shown Red reaching out with his, his right hand and dragging him with him in the Force, problem solved. And I get why they use this panel. No, no, no. I mean, you don't understand. That would require being able to draw in detail. Look at Red inside the cockpit of the ship in the last panel of the issue. He doesn't even look like a human character. He looks like he's, um, um, oh gosh, um, what are they called? Uh, he looks like a Narn from Babylon 5 <laughs> in terms yes. of the shape of his head. That's what he looks like in that shot. There's no attempt to give any kind of detail to that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> All oh I can God. say is, is thank goodness that the shape of the cockpit windows look at least partially consistent with the shape of the ship in the other shots, so at least we don't have another Dark Vader and the Ninth Assassin issue going on here. Yeah, and, and I get why this last scene is the one used. It makes a great climatic point for the ending of the episode. But the scene where we had the little droid come out... Now that scene would make sense if this scene happened before it, you know, because here in a minute we're going to find out that droid saves Jow. But again, I don't understand why that droid decided to come out and be waiting. I mean, what was the drive there? And yeah, there's a lot here at the end of this that just leaves you scratching your head going, wait, what's going on? And that's what I remember reading these single issue to single issue was it was just started out with potential and then it got a little head scratching and got a little... I'm rubbing my whole brow like, wait, what? Then I'm fine. I'm face palming at this point going, wait, what is going on? But again, when I stop and I reread this all issues one through six, not just one through five, I really enjoyed the story a lot. Uh, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we're being really negative, but I think the negative in this term is more criticism of, of a style that we just don't enjoy. And we're very acknowledging or acknowledging of the fact that other people will enjoy this style. That it just, you know, it doesn't have to appease, and a please, please, God, I can't talk. It doesn't have to appease everyone. You know, you're not going to make everyone happy all the time. In this case, when it comes to the art, we're the ones that aren't happy. I don't know. See, see, I got I to gotta 
bone to pick, though. Because, yes, you could say that the style of artwork is something that not everyone is going to go for. And I can see that. I can see some people liking this. I per personally do not. I think that it, it doesn't give enough detail. However, when the style of the artwork not only just is meh to some people's opinion, but seems to make certain parts of the story not make literal sense, to not fit with what is actually happening, then yes, I think we have a problem there. Um, I don't think Hardman is really the, the best choice for this series. Um, I wonder if the choice was simply because of the ability to have a husband and wife team here. Um, but even if this art style was simply by itself, um, there's, the, there's the overriding problem of the fact that at times it makes it difficult to see what the heck is going on. And sometimes you have stuff like I just pointed out in issue number four, where the art seems to contradict the purpose of what's going on in the story. The cortosis stuff, um, uh, the shape of different wounds and whatnot. Uh, it, that doesn't work. I would be more forgiving of this art style if it didn't have those types of things going on with it. I mean, it is to Legacy Volume 2 what the extra rock is in front of R2-D2 on Tatooine in the Blu-ray version of A New Hope, where mm. it's in front of him in one shot and, the, and it's gone in the next shot. Or the larger uh, doors to Jabba's palace. From the front, they look bigger. From inside, they look smaller. You must or the be blue consistent. top on the escape pod. <laughs> yeah, or the blue top on the escape pod. Yeah, anytime that you see it from far away, but then you see the shot when it's it looks gray, and you see the shot with, you know, looks sir droids, and all of a sudden it's back to being blue. Um, there's, no matter what the style is, it's a matter of being consistent with what the story calls for and logically making sense. If you've got an art style that's not my cup of tea, and yet you are consistent in, with the storytelling, you're fine. But when it detracts from the storytelling and in some cases causes logical or continuity errors within their same issues, then yeah, we've got an even bigger problem. I wonder if that's what causes this to grate on me so much. Um, in any event, we move on to the final issue, and this one really does a good job of showing um, Anya as sort of the non-traditional hero, or the real-world style of hero. Someone who is a hero not because they're a Jedi, not because... They have some huge position of galactic importance, but instead trying to do the right thing and not realizing it's heroic until others have to tell her that it's heroic. Um, she tries to help Sauk and isn't able to at first and goes over to where we see AG-37 having been sliced in half, as noted in the previous issue there. Um, and in talking to him, uh, the fact that he is an older droid has him point out the fact that, you know, Han Solo wasn't royalty, you know, her ancestor. Uh, he was a smuggler. Solo wasn't special. He was a criminal, but he stepped up when everything depended on him. He did it because it was the right thing to do and because his friends needed him. And she sort of steps up into that role, even as the governor is ordering the array shut down, which they can't do because it turns out that it's being directed remotely by Darth Red. Anya steals uh, a starfighter and takes off for Mala, which is right nearby at this point, conveniently, where Red has already gone to make his presentation, you might say, to the galaxy. Uh, Val being freed from his helmet, the helmet being recrafted by Red into something that instead of being a full helmet that covers his entire face, into something that will then be sort of a half mask, half helmet to cover the injury oh my God, he are you from Val. I did not realize that's what the hell was going on there. 
Well, it doesn't really entirely look like it, but it's black. And it makes no sense where he would get a helmet from otherwise. And we do have the moment at which when it's taken off of Val, it's handed to Red when we see him uh, mm-hmm. looking the other direction. So I have to assume no, that what he's doing is he's crafting it into a new helmet for himself. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I, that did not even dawn on me. That's, that's, okay. and that is the heart of my issue with this. Because, yeah, when you point that out to me, it makes obvious sense. Where is the narrative that says that? And, and there's meanwhile, nothing about- Darth Red crafts, you know, in his workshop. I mean, that would have been great. And there's I- nothing about the mask when it's being worn by Red. Uh, the little bit that we see him, it's basically just jet black and whatnot when it's being worn by Red. So we don't see any of that Red R-E-D, not W-R-E-D-D, that red line that sort of does the kit thing to be the visor. So it makes you wonder if that really is what it is. But I'll give you something more when we get later on as to ways that the costuming kind of makes me scratch my head. But suffice to say, he goes back. Um, he is in his uh, red Imperial Knight garb still, and he fixes up the helmet to be something else for himself. And he starts a transmission, a broadcast, which is being seen by, among others, uh, Draco, uh, or Antares Draco and Empress Fell. In which he's basically saying, you know, uh, I am a Sith. Uh, the Sith have been defeated and a new piece has descended on the galaxy, or has it? You know, has a new triumvirate made things uh, better? Essentially, basically talking about how weak they are. And he's going to prove this by killing the Imperial Knight he has captured, the real Yantabal, as a helpless beast. And it's being broadcast all over, which is why he wanted the communications array. Yes, Destroying the communications array would be a blow to the triumvirate, but also controlling it and being able to use that to send a message throughout the galaxy allows him to essentially declare war, his one-man war, on both the Sith and against the triumvirate and this supposed stability that he has brought, that it has brought. Now, I must say, I have to assume that not only does he put on the helmet, he prepares for this by changing back into the armor that he was wearing when we first met him still in the helmet back in issue number one. Otherwise, in the space of just a few panels, not only does he put on the helmet, but his suit changes colors from being a red and black Imperial Knight suit to being a jet black suit. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that he has put on his old costume, not that he just all of a sudden, you know, either turned black or he decided to take the time to paint the entire thing black. That was my thought. I'm like, because did he? I mean, it really actually it looks like the Imperial armor. It he does. Did. It does. It looks like that armor, but I've got well, to assume that it's Take legacy number four. Take legacy number four and hold it to that panel where he says, call me Darth Red. It is the same armor. He painted it black. Nah, it, surely, surely they're him. not I'm just random. I'm telling you, grab your number four and pull, hold them next to each other. It is identical. It's got the same cod beast down below. The, yeah. The, yeah the, is... Everything about it. The only thing that look, looks different is kind of where it goes across in the center of the chest. It's higher now where before it was right. kind of cut low. That looks to be the only thing that's different. Which I guess would beg the question of just, what was Anya doing? We find that Anya is basically spying on him from above, and uh, given the opportunity, while the broadcast is going, she jumps out and starts firing at him um, with her uh, pistol. And she must have been watching all this, so she just sitting back going, okay, dude, when you're going to do something else, I can see you're sitting there just painting your armor. Boring! In any event, she attacks him. While the broadcast, well, it's, and it's not even that she attacks him; he sees her. You know, and I, I, yeah, this is true, what I true. like because he's like ask, and it kind of reminds me of uh, 
Yeah, Iron Man 3 with the Mandarin. Haven't seen it. Going to see it when it comes out on Blu-ray in a couple of weeks. The trailer, anyway. If I could do this, is there anyone who is safe? (laughs) If I can so easily mislead an entire system and kill an Imperial Knight, a master, then who can stop me? And he looks up with his one eye. Certainly not you, little bug, but I'm happy to have you watch. And then she comes flying out, blasters blasting, but it's like... Again, she loses the element of surprise with <laughs> her ways. Yeah, she comes out, she she gets knocked into pretty easily. I mean, she's very quickly controlled. He pulls basically a magneto and takes some of the, the metal around there and wraps her up and keeps her on the ground. But she really, it seems as though her goal was just to kind of be a distraction because she has the Altaval's lightsaber that, again, somehow, unlike Zhao, didn't get sucked out into space or blown out into space um, during the end of the previous issue. And she has it sticking out of her boot. And, the idea is, and she even says, you know, notice it. Come on, Master Val, notice it. And I got to tell you, it took me a minute looking at the art to go, notice what? <laughs> Until you realize what it is because of just the way that, every, that the shot is constructed. He notices, he pulls it to him, uses it to uh, very carefully, apparently, undo the shackles on his wrist without cutting his arms off. And he goes into direct battle with Darth Red. Um, and this was a great scene, not just for yeah. that. But again, getting back to what Red's doing and how it's being portrayed everywhere. This is where, where, um, Fel sees Solo, you know, and she's like, what's happening? Who is that girl? But for me, it's his speech. He continues, there's no real power left in the galaxy that can oppose me. None can guess where I'll strike next. And that totally reminds me of the Mandarin, you know, he's like, you'll never see me coming. It's like, oh man, because I keep questioning, why is he telling everyone? When, you know, as we're going to see in the next issue, he's going to start hunting down Sith. Like, wouldn't it be better to just do it? Keep it quiet? Well, it depends. Attack from the shadows? Kind of depends on what your intentions are, right? Because um, if he if he is essentially seen as the traditional villain, the Sith as an opposing dark version of the Jedi Knights and such, then it wouldn't make sense for him to reveal this. If he is sort of a ninja-style character, assassin in the background, then it wouldn't make sense. If we view this in the context that he is essentially engaging in a campaign of what is essentially modern-style terrorism, it makes perfect sense for him to say it because that's part of what um, modern terrorists are able to use, whether we're talking about early actions by the PLO or we're talking about Hezbollah, we're talking about Hamas, we're talking about Uh, Al-Qaeda. It's all this, or AQAP in particular, it's all this when it comes to the idea of, yes, there's only certain amounts of attacks you can pull off. Um, and sometimes you'll try to pull it off and you won't be able to. Sometimes they won't be spectacular. You only get one massive attack, like a 9-11 style attack, probably within a lifetime of an entire terrorist organization. But you can so fear if you're able to get across the message that this could happen anywhere and you will try to bring down a certain system and that because you are essentially a stateless enemy, there is no easy way to catch you. There is no easy people to attack back. It's part of why fighting terrorism is so difficult now. Because even though, for instance, Al-Qaeda was based out of Afghanistan, you can't just bomb Afghanistan because there is a government there. And in that case, it was the Taliban, which itself was aiding Al-Qaeda. But you take something like, you know, say you've got terrorists hiding out in, oh, I don't know, Chechnya, right? You can't just blow up all of Chechnya because there are innocent people there. And the terrorists aren't necessarily the government there or backed by the government there. This man could hide anywhere and you still have to go after them directly. It's the old line of a, 
of C.J. Craig in the not post 9-11 Isaac and Ishmael episode of the West Wing, in which he talks about how, you know, a lot of these guys aren't going to be taken by a tank division. They're going to be taken out by a busboy with a silencer. You're going to have to find this guy and get close to him to take him out, and that makes him a harder enemy to find. And the fact that he's proclaiming, you know, this sort of randomness to his strikes gives us a sense that this is based on terror. It's based on fear. It's based on driving the other government to make mistakes, to back off, or to otherwise change their actions based on that fear. That's one of the things that, that defines terrorism as opposed to, say, mass murder. Um, a You might go around and kill 20 random people in a city, and if you do that just for the heck of it or out of some kind of psychological need, you're a serial killer. You're a murderer. If you're doing it with the purpose being to somehow change the system where you are based on fear of your actions, that defines you as a terrorist. It's a matter of not just your methods, but your motives. Certainly, Darth Red feels like a Sith terrorist here more than he feels like a traditional Sith in the way we tend to see them. Well, and then, it, you know, like like I was just saying, he goes, there's no real power left in the galaxy that can oppose me. None can guess where I'll strike next. And then we see he's, his next strike is a Sith in the next issue, which I guess kind of opens up that aspect of now, you know, should they go after him or should they let him do their work? So it is kind of he's not just striking out against the triumvirate, he's striking out against the galaxy as a whole, but we will later see in his next actions, he will make it more apparent to those in the Federation that he's not just after them. So I guess I guess I could see how that does buy him a sort of a anonymity there that he would have kept if he'd have just stayed quiet, and the power that goes with it. So Anya apparently has super strength, and she is able to extricate herself from this metal that just a few panels before we saw wrap around her body Magneto-style, and goes running. Uh, knowing that the array looks like it's going to crash down onto the planet thanks to Red's uh, plans, because, hey, he's gotten his message out, now he's going to let it be destroyed as another blow against the, the Triumvirate, she goes running off back into the Starfighter, goes back to the array, while uh, Yaltaval, the real Yaltaval, is battling against um, Darth Red. She manages to save Salk and save uh, AG-37, who we see being dragged here with, again, the slice being across his waist with both arms attached to the top of his body, which does not match the shot in which he is sliced in half, where the two halves don't match. And she manages essentially to get them out of there. Um, when the tables tend to turn against Red, who has his lightsaber slashed uh, at, in its hilt by a lightsaber strike, which always kind of strikes me as, you know, isn't that the obvious thing if you're in a lightsaber duel? <laughs> Wouldn't the obvious thing be to go after the hilt? Yeah. Um, although, well, why, hands. <laughs> why is Darth Red holding this the hilt by the very, very end of it so that that can happen? I don't know. That's an interesting choice of a of grips. So it'd be like trying to hold a knife by the edge of it and scoop out some butter. Um, yeah. Suffice well, to say... Like, when, you, uh, when you were mentioning AG and Salk yeah. being drug out by uh, Anya there, I love the 3PO type moment there where AG's like, Anya, there's no time. Leave me and get to the ship. Save Salk. And she's like, shut up. <laughs> I mean, it's classic. I'm done for, sir. Take any of my parts if you need them. Right. Well, and, and of course, as they're fighting... We see Red, uh, again, his escape, again, what kind of sense do the shots we see make? Not freaking much. Um, we see him get his lightsaber slashed, and in the conversation he's saying, you know, looks like the one Sith isn't coming back. You're right. I plan to be the only Sith. Weren't you just talking about needing an apprentice? So you're going to be the only Sith? 
with an apprentice, thereby making you not the only Sith? How exactly is that working? Um, <laughs> uh, so, and then somehow, okay. I know it, how. It goes from, basically, Yaltabal has his lightsaber up in almost like a baseball player stance about to swing, and we see Red on the ground reaching down. There is oh, a he's not reaching. Or, or something. He's, he's like sitting down on the ground. He's sitting down, squatted down with his hand on the ground. There's a crash, this big like explosion type thing. He disappears, and all of a sudden, we see Yaltabal rear back, and there goes the ship saying, Farewell, Master Val, flying off with the Sith in it. Now, this is what happened, it, it, it doesn't make sense because we see the Sith ship behind him in the shot above. I thought the crash was that it was coming out of the ground or something, but that still wouldn't make sense how he immediately goes from sitting there to somehow in the ship in a matter of seconds to say farewell, Master Val, through the communication device. But that's not even what it is. Unless he's just, like, using the force to cause the ground to erupt to cover him running to the ship, the shots don't make sense. And if it's that that's supposed to be happening, make it clear, for the love of God, Hardman! <laughs> Tell a story in sequential art that makes sense. You don't skip necessary things to have another quick shot of this action power kick or something. Do something to make it clearer next time around. Well, he's kneeling down. He's drawing the dark side of the force towards him because it is a gateway to powers that are unnatural. And then he unleashes that power in an explosion which launches him up into the air and transforms him into a ship. He's oh, that's the first what it is. Sith Transformer. That's You've what it is. You've seen the line. I think you have a couple. He flies into the air. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah, it, it's... Farewell, so Master Val. Later. In the background, I mean, you could... Okay, two scenes back, if you look up, you could see the ship sitting on its on its dock. That's the only thing they give you. And you can only tell it's there because they had to put white in the background around it because that's how dark everything is. I mean, and that to me, I think that's also what throws me off that when you have to add these white halos around everything you have because everything is just too dark, it's too dark. You're drowning out your background with white just so you can see one or two details back there. I mean, look at the top of that page. You'll see in the corner in the bottom right, there's the ship sitting on its on its strut. And I believe that's either the red cockpit or a wing uh, on the top, or maybe that's one of the pods on the side. It's probably a pod on the side, actually. But yeah, the detail is there. One of our Beyonders on the Facebook page said uh, the flat. They mentioned how it felt very flat. And that is very true. Like, the, the lack of detail makes everything here look very flat. Um, you know, some comics, they, they really go out of their way to kind of bring a 3D effect. is totally missing here. So as the, ship, the Sith ship flies off, we see AG-37 ship arrive, piloted by AG-37 and Anya, saving the day, saving... Yaltabal, and as they go into space, and she's basically making sure that Yalta and Salk are taken care of, um, they find that the little droid has managed, with a little breather thing, to save Jao up in space, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of the way that actual space would work, but again, it's Star Wars. The rules of physics don't always necessarily apply, I suppose, here. Um, very much like Cade being able to survive, perhaps. Um, and managed to get killer. him. Yeah, or a Star Killer. Actually, much more like Star Killer, I guess, in this case. And then yeah, that's who I thought of originally. I mean, that that leapt right to my really quick though. When Ag and Anya are in the cockpit, Ag's sitting in the pilot seat. So there's a little detail here. You can see that he is got two belts now, strapping his upper torso into the chair. 
kudos for the little detail that tells me how that happened. Because I originally was like, what is he doing sitting in a chair? He has no lower body. But they went ahead and gave us detail in that panel, and I was very happy. Thank you. Still can't quite explain what the heck happened with the Slash, but at least that's there. Um, we wind up finding, as they take off here, um, that this is where finally we, we get a sense that Anya um, is more of a humble type of character. She didn't realize the heroism of what she was doing, which is part, one of the things I really like about this issue. She says, you know, I'm so sorry, Salk. This... All of it, you, A.G., or Ag, whatever she's trying to say, Jow, it's all my fault. You tried to warn me, but... Anya, what are you talking about? You saved us. All of us. And sort of the realization that, wow, you know, she's done something heroic even though she didn't mean to. Which I like about the character. She is not... She's sort of everything that Cade wasn't in the sense of ego. She may talk big, but when yeah. it comes down to it, when she when she does get into a situation that is action-packed, she's much more just kind of doing what she can. A very human-type character as opposed to being someone who has a lot of ego behind everything. Which brings us, of course, to the recording of the communications array transmission in which she jumped out. You know, the uh, I, it's okay for you to watch. When she jumps out and goes pew 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 at him, uh, where we see Gar Stasi, Kukruk, Empress Fell, uh, they're sitting around a conference table, and in comes Draco to basically provide the report from Governor Biala of what has happened in the system. And he says, it seems there was a girl involved in the destruction of the communications array there. He says, it sounded uh, like it was wait, her real, fault. Uh, real fast, he was sitting there with Fell when they watched the recording. Don't you know the girl was there, dude? <laughs> this is true. This is true. Um, that, you know, that the governor's unclear about exactly what happened. Her name is Anya Solo, and the, the final line of the first story of Legacy Volume 2 is, Solo? Same question we were asking when we first heard the announcement of this series, who the hell is Anya Solo? Yes, she actually says, who the hell is Anya Solo? That was amusing enough that that, actually show, that line shows up quoted in my summary of this story for the Star Wars Timeline Gold. And, and that was one that was while funny was also a blow to my expectations um you know when legacy one came out we had a scene where kate is talking to uh shia fell I, I don't know how to say know how to say her first name mashaya rashaya shia anyway uh the empress fell they're talking back when she was still the princess fell and they were talking about the relatives in the hapes consortium and i was thinking okay obviously the solo family all right. How else would they be your relatives? And with her saying that like that, it's like, I don't know. It kind of threw me so off. Like, I really would love to have a zero issue that gives us more of the details of the family aspects of these people. You don't have to go 100 percent in the details of Anya necessarily, but I want to know what's going on with Hapes, how Fell is still related to the Hapes in her mind. And yet she does not associate Solo with that family anymore. What happened there? Uh, you know, I mean, we know that uh, Alana Solo still is carrying the Solo name, and we know that everyone now knows that she's actually uh, the Chumda after all, but then there's nothing else there. I mean, I was really looking forward to sort of the Jedi book series kind of tying some of those elements together, you know, maybe seeing the founding of the Imperial Knights, maybe seeing what was going on in Hapes, kind of having it all tied together, because I really thought this series was going to focus itself in the Hapes Consortium. You know, the Solo family. Okay, they're all in hate still, right? I mean, that's what Legacy, the first volume, led me to believe. But then that quote was kind of like, it made me stop and scratch my head. 
it's a good thing and a bad thing, my scratching my head. It's good in the aspect of there's plenty of story opportunities here. The problem with the EU is there are a lot of story opportunities, but very rarely do all of those get ran with. Case in point, Legacy Volume 1, The Mandalorian Story. It's not showing up in here at all. Should. It's a story that's already previously established that has no ending. You would think that would need to be wrapped up before you start a whole other story. But that's where I'm just going to like, I would love to see this stuff, but I'm afraid they're just going to ignore it. They're just going to be like, yeah, we don't want to tie it all together. And so they got these little plot threads out there that are kind of demanding answers. But then there's other things that they don't want to answer. And I think that when the two conflict, the story is going to hurt because they're not going to give you the, the needed information to give you more background here. I'm really enjoying this story because of the characters, but I would like to have a little bit more of their background to care about them more. And some art that does a better job of telling the story. Um, unfortunately, when Brian Albert Theis joins for the next story arc, uh, Outcast of the Broken Ring, a name that we have to, of course, find out uh, from the letters page of issue number five, because they certainly don't say it in the issues, it's just going to wind up being more money and less clear, which I wasn't even sure was possible. Um, but certainly it seems like that's the direction they're going with the art style here. But I will say uh, it's it's ironic, I think, that while we as continuity fans are wanting to see exactly how this all ties together, heck, we're still wanting to find out how it is that uh, Ben Skywalker is related to Cole Skywalker. How many generations are there in between? Is it a direct relationship? Does Luke wind up having another child somehow at some point? And there's a whole other uh, uh, pathway through the Skywalkers to get to Cole and so on and so on. Um, while we're waiting for answers for that and we're expecting answers with this one, we don't get them. And I think the final line there, who the hell is Anya Solo, is rather fitting, given the fact that I don't think the writers even freaking know. Because they <laughs> first talked about this um, series in a, a, a quick story that appeared on Comic Book Resources. Comic Book Resources winds up doing a couple of different interviews that add some information into what we know about these characters. Um, and Comic Book Resources, uh, on, when, when Dark Horse was speaking with them, this isn't CBR talking, it's Dark Horse saying it, they identified Anya as Han and Leia's great-granddaughter, right? Then, however, they added into this the idea that, no, 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 when Dark Horse started soliciting the first issue of the series in things like previews, they referred to her as the great-great-granddaughter. They added another generation in there, into that generation gap, only for now, they kind of thrown it out the window, and now they're saying basically that, uh, well, she's related to them, but exactly how, that's not something we're going to reveal anytime soon. Which makes me say that's something they're not going to reveal ever. Because if the new EU, or whatever you want to call it, if the arrival of Episode 7 in 2015 and of Rebels in 2014 has the expected effect of taking this version of the continuity post-Return of the Jedi, and perhaps even before Return of the Jedi, and winds up striking it as an alternate continuity of some kind, and all the focus of writing starts going into things that tie into the new films and not this old, now sort of out-of-date version of the continuity, if they don't reveal that soon... I don't know if they're ever going to get a chance to reveal it in a story, unless they just throw it into a guidebook or something, like Dan Wallace's next Essential Guide to Characters that got pushed back so it can include Episode 7 characters and the like. I'm, I am not hopeful that we will ever get an answer, especially given how long it's been since the original Legacy, and we still don't have an answer about Cole versus Ben. Man, I don't, I don't like the idea of them pushing stuff like that back for Episode 7 characters. Just put it out now. 
or put it out right before episode seven and then make a next edition that, that deals with the new stuff because who I, I don't know, man. It, it just seems like sometimes you can't get past that break. Uh, now, when I first read these, you know, I said it in episode 91, I read issues one through six because there was no one of five, one of ten, you know, any of that kind of stuff in the beginning after the first one. The first one, it said uh, Prisoner of the Floating World, part one. No part one of five, no none of that, just part one. And then after that, everything just disappeared. The series runs like it's an ongoing series at this point, if you're just grabbing single issues. And that's what I was doing. I read all the way through them. I thought six was the last episode. And honestly, I think that the first arc works better if you consider the sixth one as the last episode. Uh, we're going to talk about that one really fast. Uh, we're not going to do any review of it spoiler free. It's going to be full spoilers uh, because when we do get to the second arc, we're going to go over it again there. But I wanted to go over it real quick with this because I find that it complements the first arc very well. Uh, you know, I was talking in episode 91 that if you're going to read these, I wouldn't read it as a trade unless you had the first and the second trade at that point or some of the single issues because of what we're going to talk about, because it really does add to the story and the character developments that have been going on in the first arc. I really, truly believe that this one should be the end of the first arc by the way it goes. But they haven't got to any of the new arcs, so it's kind of hard to say. We will address the second arc as a whole when it finally gets completed, but we're going to touch it real quick just because of how it plays in. It feels very much like an epilogue in a sense. Um, my book, Echoes, that is no longer available because I'm not really all that that proud of, of the writing style of it. and it, I just kind of took it out from Lulu and whatnot. Um, and my book, Greater Good. In both cases, I was telling stories that are essentially standalone stories, but I like stories that leave sort of a hint of what might come in the future, the beginning of future adventures and such. So I added in the epilogue in each one does something that sort of wraps up some loose ends, gives you a sense of closure on some characters, but at the same time opens up future possibilities. Um, for, for not Even if there's not necessarily going to be any other stories in those universes, hey, the possibility is still there. Very much like we see with, say, the end of um, Star Trek or Star Trek Into Darkness, the two more recent Star Trek films, where they end it essentially with you know the Enterprise shooting off to warp to go on a, a new missions. In the case of the newest film, the beginning of the five-year mission that is sort of the, the the hallmark of the Enterprise's time with Starfleet, at least in that original continuity and such. And that's sort of what this does. I don't want to go too much in-depth with it. Suffice to say, what we have is that Red is going around killing Sith. He's killed at least two, not counting his own master, it seems, at this point. And the Galactic Triumvirate, despite some of the... Uh, the, the shock from Antares Draco is pretty much deciding that for now, that's not their problem. As long as he's out there killing Sith, oh freaking well, he's sort of doing their job for them. Um, Yalta is going to be transferred back to basically become an administrator for a while. Um, it looks like Anya's going to be able to get a new job on Coruscant. Salk is going to work with AG, though he gets a, uh, there's a point at which he gets an offer to join a group of refugees going back to the shipyards over Dak to sort of sort of bring the Mon Calamari people back together. Um, Jow, for his part... Yeah, that seemed like a, a, a plot point that they're going to expand later. Mm -hmm. Jow is going back, basically, uh, supposedly going to be on restricted duty so that he can heal, though it feels like, you know, he's being taken out of the game, but he has had a vision of Red killing the Empress while he was in Bacta, and it sort of leaves this sense that all the main characters are frustrated by the fact, or at least... All but maybe A.G. and Salk, although I think they would agree as well, 
they're frustrated by the fact that there's nothing that's going to be done about Red. And it takes Zhao to be the one to explain, you know, that uh, throughout history, essentially, he says, you know, you don't understand. Before the one Sith banded together to take power, it had always been another way. A master and an apprentice. Together, they were unbelievably strong. Palpatine and Vader, they upended the galaxy. The reverberations from their reign is still being felt. For a thousand years before them, there was peace in the galaxy. For more than 100 years since, nothing but chaos. I think he's systematically killing off the other Sith so that he can bring back the old ways. Um, and you sort of have this groundwork of, oh crap, that is what Red is trying to do, but there's nothing they can do about it because they all have their own things they're supposed to be doing and the Galactic Triumvirate doesn't want to do anything. And we end the issue with that promise of more in the future of basically Anya and Zhao deciding that if no one else is going to go after Red, they have to. Granted, they're going to have to deal with getting past Yalta to get a ship to get out of there in the first place as we come to the end of that issue. But it's all essentially this, this if no one else is going to do it, then we will type of thing. Uh, going rogue to do what the others cannot. It's very much essentially in, in, a, in an analogous sense. They are the United States dealing with Iraq and the triumvirate is the United Nations. Um, there's... Things that should be done, the UN is unable to do it, the US feels like they've got to. Kind of the same thing's going on right now with Syria, in a sense. <laughs> Only in this case, rather than it being a nation trying to go it alone outside of a community of nations, it's a handful of people going it alone when the nation to which they belong, this galaxy-spanning triumvirate, isn't willing to step up and do it because of other concerns that are taking their time now. I like that as a launching point. It yeah. feels like an epilogue. Very much a transition. I'm not sure that I would say that it needs to be there to be an end of the previous arc. I think the previous arc ends fine as it is. But certainly reading this issue to launch the next arc gave me a much greater appreciation for the characters as we saw them in the previous arc. So that when I went back to reread all five of them before we recorded about them, aside from the artwork that drives me nuts, I found a much greater appreciation for the characters and the story and have much more hope for where this series is going to go than I had prior to reading issue number six. Now, if only they could get the artwork right and bring in somebody who draws something other than blobs of black. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you on that with the uh, character and stuff. I'm really enjoying where the character's going. And it sucks that we had to get six issues in for me to feel that way. I mean, I felt that way right away with the first Legacy, and I truly attribute that to the zero and zero and a half issues. They gave you enough background information about the characters that you already had a feeling of whether or not you were going to like this character or if you wanted to know more. With this one, you wanted to know more because you wanted to know more in general. There was nothing to know about anybody. Then as you got it, you're like, well, what's driving these characters? Why are they doing what they're doing? And you'll get a tidbit here and there. Might make sense. Might not. There's a moment, though, here on Coruscant where the uh, triumvirates together, Crux talking with Stasi and uh, Fel, Draco's there, uh, Kruk goes, clearly Red has his own agenda apart from the Sith. And then Stasi goes, perhaps the question is, should we respond? It may be unsavory, but Red is doing our job for us. And then Draco leans across and he goes, what? Empress, we couldn't possibly. Now, was that supposed to be Stasi saying that? Or was that supposed to be Empress Fell saying it and they just screwed up on the art? Because that's one of those things that I'm like, when I read that, I had a, I'm like, why is he addressing the Empress? Because the next page turns and it's it, the conversation's over. So it's like, it really left me feeling like he should have, you know, Stasi shouldn't have been in that scene. It should have been Fell because Draco seems like it was her that had said that. Um, there are little things like that. There's also the Star Destroyer uh, in the background that 
when uh, Anya's in her room, you see some Star Destroyer and a bunch of other ships outside the window. And it's like, is that a painting or is there more there? I mean, little details like that where, you know, we talked about how the art already was bad. And then we get to this art style and it just gets so much darker that so much more is just completely lost. You're just like, I mean, there are scenes where things are just so dark, you don't even know what they're doing. Like the the Snivian, the Snivian Sith that Red goes after at the beginning Mm -hmm. uh, when he doesn't have his Sith markings showing or anything like that. It apparently must have been underneath his fur or something. Yeah, Um, yeah. uh, That's another one. They do have fur, right? I'm like, because I was thinking about that. I'm like, how does fur scrape off like that? He (laughs) he should be known as Darth Blob because that's basically what it is. Or Darth Blot, like an ink blot. Because that's what he looks like in a lot of the shots. Just a vague black ink blotted form. It's one of those things where you got to wonder, did they have to be really, really careful when they were coloring this, whenever the art was coming in, when they were doing the inking and stuff, so that they didn't wind up with the entire side of their hand going black, or was it all just digital? Well, and then, like, another one is when Anya is talking with the uh, the Imperial Sergeant Officer Lady, when they're about to go into Anya's room, when you look at the lady's head, her hat is smaller than her head. Like, like the hat, like, is cinched down around her eyebrows, but the bill of the hat, where it sticks out and where the top of the hat is... The top of that hat ends, and there's like three inches of her head just missing. Like, wait. Although, what? we do get a better look at the helmet that Red is wearing, and yes, it is meant to be the helmet from the first issue retooled because it's got the red visor part over half of his eye. Of course, the red visor part wasn't there in the previous issue because of Hardman's artwork. But it is shown in this issue, and you can see it as well on the cover. Of issue number six, which is done yeah. by someone else. And that was something, too. I was wondering, I'm like, I'm like, is that helmet supposed to have an eye? Because, yeah, it wasn't there in the other ones. So, yeah, we'll discuss six more in depth when we talk about it with its arc. Uh, last thing I wanted to cover here with you before we go. Uh, is wait, wait, the... wait, there, there is one other thing I find kind of amusing here. Okay. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the helmet, if we didn't know from the previous one that the helmet part actually goes over part of the top of his head, it's not just like a half face like Kano from Mortal Kombat. If you look at the cover of Legacy Number Six, it almost looks like he's got some zits going on on his forehead on the side opposite the metal. I think it's supposed to be things shining off the metal, but it's hard to tell. It looks like he's got like three zits running up from his eye. It does. Oh, I mean, it's even hard to tell that that's not a full helmet. I mean, he almost looks like he's got a Captain America mask on. Behold, <laughs> Darth Acne. <laughs> Sith Lords, assemble! <laughs> I don't know. Now, uh, before we go, I want to talk about the covers uh, real fast for issues one through five. Uh, you know, I, I really, for the most part, I enjoyed the covers. I want to say there's only two that I really didn't like. Yep. Two and four. Those are the only two I really didn't care for. Uh, issue number one, I felt like it did a really good job of feeling kind of like a movie poster. Uh, Anya wearing the uh, solo style belt that Han always wears. Uh, and, you see the Sith and, and uh, Master Val fighting. That's the one that you that, see from the hologram. And didn't the background there with Yalta Val being the Imperial Knight, because we knew there was going to be an Imperial Knight in the story with her. Wasn't that a cool red herring that it's actually Jow that seems like he's going to be the regular with Anya? And mm-hmm. since we don't introduce him until issue number two, we see Val there behind her as part of that poster style as a nice sort of, of deviation to the idea of which of these Imperial Knights is going to be the main one in the story. I thought that was kind of cool. I did too. I did too. And I got to admit, I like Sok as a character. I like having him on Kalmari and... Uh, companion i mean you know it, it's kind of like the best of all the droids that you've ever seen in a moncal 
because you know usually you get a droid and they're always an engineer and able to fix anything. Well, now you've got a Mon Cal, and those things can do anything. Uh, issue two, you know, in in uh, episode ninety one, we talked about how much we really did not like the Planet of the Apes cover. Uh, you know, you can listen there for more on that detail. I would assume you're listening to these back to back because they kind of play as one episode. Um, Nathan, we know you don't like it at all, and I agree. Uh, issue three is by far and away, I think, my favorite issue of them all. Uh, this is the one with Jow Awesome on the fo- uh, on the cover. Joe Awesome is awesome as he's fighting off the uh, the creature that looks to be part space slug, part Sarlacc pit, and part Rancor all together. Uh, I, I just I don't know. I like the action of the with cover. A, He's cutting the face, tentacle. If you look at the cover, doesn't the face look like one of the uh, the skitters from Falling Skies? <laughs> yeah, oh, I was thinking uh, NBA basketball. It looks like he's about to do a slam dunk. <laughs> uh, we get to issue four. That's another one I don't care for. It's uh, an action shot of the cargo bay, but the ship in the background is the ship that Master Val crashed in episode one. We never see that ship again in the series, aside from crashed on the planet, uh, the floating world. Uh, but for the most part, it's that scene where uh, Red's trying to escape from the hangar, although it's missing Joe Awesome. Uh, Jow just isn't there. Uh, the Moncal art, I think, on that issue is probably the best of that cover. And then the last one, we get uh, Jow's ship flying away uh, from the what I can only assume to be the uh, array crashing on the planet. Although, again, that too is a scene that, that doesn't quite happen because that ship that's flying away is actually tucked inside the hangar of the ship that really flew away. But whatever. Right. And there's two other covers, actually, that we haven't oh, yeah. hit. Um, the first issue, and I actually have both of these. Um, because again, I'm, I'm excited to see where the Legacy series goes, and I like the story here, especially now that we've gotten to issue number six. I just, it's the artwork that gets to me. Don't get me wrong, I, we're, I'm, I feel like I'm ripping into this because the art detracts so much from the storytelling, but if you take it from sort of a summary standpoint, a general plot standpoint, and not the way it was executed, I think it's a great concept that they're going with here. Um, but that first issue, had an exclusive variant from WonderCon um, in Anaheim, and that one basically just has, it's a black, it's basically a black and white cover with the only thing that is in color being green of uh, the legacy title and the lightsaber that Anya's holding, which, you know, doesn't make sense for the lightsaber color of uh, Yalta Val, but that's yeah. a whole other thing. Um, it looks cool. Yeah, it looks cool. Um, she, it's by uh, Dan Panosian. Uh, the other ones are by Dave Wilkins and has her basically in that same outfit. Although, honestly, she she reminds me more there of Kara Holt than she does of Anya Solo, the way that Anya appears at all in this series. Probably because Anya's generally sporting the ponytail type of thing going on. And then we have a cover known as the Phantom variant, available at specific retailers, um, which in some cases you could get signed. I was able to get mine, for instance, uh, signed by ordering it as part of one of those big launch event type of things. Um, and it's an actual cover by Gabriel Hardman. So it's by the guy who does the regular art, but it's set up in such a way that it's meant to mirror the Star Wars cover, uh, the, the uh, A New Hope film poster. Hang on, I'm trying to pull it up here and get it so that it actually shows me the whole fucking thing. Thank you very much. Um, That's, yeah, you mean the one that was back when it was just Star Wars, right? That one where it's got Luke with the blaster front, Leia on right, the yeah. uh, right shooting yeah. out, and Han shooting. Okay. Here we go. The Phantom variant in this case uh, shows Anya standing where Luke would be on the cover. It, it's uh, the old Star Wars uh, movie poster cover. It's the cover that in different variant forms was used for the VHS versions of A New Hope all the way up through 1992 or so. 
Um, but it's got her with a lightsaber above her. In place of Leia, it's Salk, which is kind of interesting. Uh, then her droid behind them, along with uh, AG-37. Rather than X-Wings flying across the side, uh, there's other uh, period-era starfighters. You've got uh, up in the top left corner, you have the probe droid, the one that went out and actually uh, uh, brought the lightsaber out and then wound up saving Jow at the end. And behind you have sort of a vague outline of Darth Red's face, kind of like you would have the vague outline of Vader's face on a lot of the uh, the artwork of a similar style. So I thought that was kind of cool, doing something that's that's specifically meant to harken back, although I think it could give a false impression when we see Anya there wielding a lightsaber, as if somehow she was a Jedi. She's not. It's sort of a, uh, she found it, and now she's holding it up and turning it on and just hoping she doesn't cut her own fingers off. Well, and I think all the episode covers, episode covers, all the issue covers where she's holding a lightsaber are going to give you that impression. I, I think every time we've seen her carrying one, it threw me off. And, and, and it got me excited for all the wrong reasons, of course. Um, but, you know, when it comes to these variant covers, I really, I like the throwback covers, the ones that do that hearkening back to original issues. I like it when Marvel does it, and I love it when my Star Wars does it. It's always fun. Um, yeah, the uh, the lightsaber covers with Anya... Like, I don't know, like, there is one side of me that wants to see her welding a lightsaber more, but then it kind of defeats the character. I mean, if she's carrying the lightsaber, it's got to be in the Han Solo, I'm cutting open the uh, dead Tauntaun to put Luke inside because the Tauntaun's lukewarm on the inside kind of thing. But I, I don't know, I mean, if she suddenly were to start welding the Force or something like that, I don't think that that would work at all for what they're trying to do with the story, so... I don't know. I, I, sometimes it gets dangerous when you put her holding the lightsaber because there's that desire to see her force push somebody or do something else. And she's never going to do that. So I don't I don't know. It's like I, I kind of don't think I want to see her holding a lightsaber in any other cover art from here on out. <laughs> this is true. That is why still my favorite cover is the one that they used for the regular edition. She's holding a blaster, no lightsaber, very cinematic looking. That's definitely... Uh, the one that I prefer, and thankfully that's also the one I believe they've used for the uh, trade paperback as well. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you once again for hanging around as we ponder on sharing in the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes. They're streaming online at the Star Wars Report website. You can find it at www.starwarsreport.com. You can also get episodes available on iTunes, which we... Uh, want you to leave reviews like really badly we love reviews it feeds our egos uh we're also on stitcher now i don't know if you guys knew about this we've been there for uh, i think since episode 80 or 83 somewhere around there uh we've been on stitcher so if you're listening from there hey glad to have you there and if not and you do listen to stitcher you can find us there as well uh let's see and also be sure to check out the Amazon.com shop my wife and I run. It is Lil Joe Collectibles, so it's Amazon.com slash shops slash L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. Uh, cool stuff from both of our collections. Please check it out. You can also find links to our episodes. They're both on Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It is our headquarters of our community, of course. Uh, we are working on building our Twitter account as well, getting it the same number. I mean, more of you guys on one hand than the other. Let's get it even! So not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. If you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. 
Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Audible members, they're able to exchange any book within 12 months. That's a whole year with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that the third arc will have another artist that just paints in all black. Like I said it last time, but it bears repeating. <laughs> Look at all these lovely shades of black I've got. They all contrast so well. 